This is East Lansing Insider, brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. In this show, we break down all of the news and happenings in the East Lansing community. And now, today's East Lansing Insider. Hello and welcome to the East Lansing Insider, a news podcast brought to you by East Lansing Info and 89FM, The Impact. My name is Andrew Graham. I'm a reporter with the East Lansing Info, and I'm joined today by Alice Drager, my boss and Eli's founder and executive director. Alice, how are you doing? Good, Andrew. Always a delight to be with you. We've had some issues getting the podcast going today, so apologize if we are... Uh, a little silly, but the East Lansing City Council elections are just around the corner. The general election is on November 2nd, and voters will be deciding only the city council race. There are seven candidates running for three seats, and we will be getting into all of that good stuff in a short little bit. But first, Alice, we wanted to rewind it back to the 2015 council race and election to kind of highlight how this year is relatively tame for a number of reasons, but how this election, especially compared to some recent ones, is is pretty tame. So I was a senior in high school in 2015, for those who don't know. So <laughs> can you um, give me a little background on the 2015 election in East Lansing? Yeah, for sure. And one thing I wanted to remind folks about is a thing that has changed since that election is the way Michigan law works. So you can actually now register and vote on the same day. You can literally go into the city hall, go to the city clerk's office, and there's also a satellite office at Brody Hall. And you can register to vote and vote at the same time. They'll give you an absentee ballot. So one of the great things now is you can vote absentee for no reason, which means you can get your vote done today if you want to get it done. But the last day to do it will be next Tuesday. Um, and if you can hear Andrew's dog in the background, you know, he's yep. very excited about the election. Many apologies. He's he's just <laughs> so excited to vote. He's so excited about this election. So this election, as Andrew mentioned, has been pretty tame compared to some years past. And I think the one that really stands out to me is the wildest election probably that we experienced was just a year after Eli uh, came into existence. We started publishing in September 2014. And we did so in part because people didn't know what was going on in the city. And one of the things people didn't know about was the giant pension debt, including the un funded debt that East Lansing has. It's now, as I recently reported for Eli, $100 million in unfunded pension liabilities. So one of the people running uh, was Ruth Beyer. Oh, well, no, actually, Ruth Beyer was not running. She was on council, but um, Mayor Nathan Triplett was running for re-election. And Triplett and Beyer were having a very public argument about the question of debt. And this was a very tight election because um, Triplett was basically saying the the budgets were balanced, and so East Lansing was in good shape. And Beyer was saying, but you're not paying attention to the pension debt, which is a really huge issue, and it means we're not in good shape. So there was this big argument about whether or not the city of East Lansing was in good financial shape. And um, Triplett was running for re-election, but um, running against him were three sort of reform candidates at the time. It was Mark Meadows, who had been a previously on city council and previously a mayor, Eric Altman, who was a newcomer, and Steve Ross, who was also a newcomer. And they were running kind of as a slate, um, not not officially, I think, as a slate. But what happened on the Friday before election was kind of an election surprise. And Altman had sent out a letter in response to being attacked by the Lansing Regional Chamber of Commerce. And he was sort of writing about how it was that, um, you know, he had gotten 
big, powerful people angry and you should vote for him. And in that letter, he mentioned the other people running that he supported, which was Meadows and Ross. And this was not a legal thing to do under campaign finance law because it means that he was essentially, as I understand it, um, supporting another election with his own mailing. And there's ways in which you have to disclose all sorts of things when you're doing this. Right. Right. And, and so at the very last minute on the Friday before the election, somebody under the name Steve Meadows, which was a combination of the name Steve Ross and Mark Meadows, filed a complaint with city uh, county clerk Barb Byram, who oversees the elections here, and made an official complaint about violation of campaign finance law. And within like 30 seconds, the Lansing State Journal had a story on it, which I found very curious how it all moved so quickly. Um, and it's worth noting that Byram was supporting triplet in the election. And so what ended up happening was on the Friday before the election, there was this big story in the LSJ saying that Altman had violated campaign finance law. And it might have had an effect on the election, but as it turns out, it didn't. And as it turns out, Altman and Meadows were elected. Ross was not elected in that um, round. Shanna Draheim was also elected. But what ended up happening is we were trying to find out who Steve Meadows was. And so we did a series of Freedom of Information Act requests and we're basically refused um, the information. And I ended up actually taking it to the County Board of Commissioners, but we never did find out who officially made the complaint. It was under a false name, that much we were able to verify. Um, so that was a very exciting election and ended up changing sort of the direction of East Lansing. And we ended up seeing the financial health team instituted after that. And East Lansing started sort of grappling openly with the issue of the pension debt. And I thought two city council members resigning during a meeting was wild. I am but a young, inexperienced reporter. That's a, that is a crazy story that I did not I did not know that had happened. I was just unfamiliar with that whole history. It was really of how nuts. Al I, I mean, Altman ended up on council. Yeah, we actually ended up with like a whole series of articles about what we called the Steve Meadows mystery, and it went on a long time in terms of trying to find out who had launched this particular complaint at the last minute, and how did the LSJ get the story like within thirty seconds, apparently, of the complaint being made, and it, it was almost like they had a story almost, you know right out of the gate. And so it was a very, very curious scene that had gone on that year. Your white whale, Steve Meadows. <laughs> I gave up after a while, but I'm still curious who Steve Meadows was. <laughs> oh, we always remain curious about those things. So moving into this election and what voters will be deciding is, you know, they're voting for council members, but they're also voting for how the sort of how those people will address problems and the problems those people raise. And, I, you know, you'd hope voters are voting as much for issues as they are for people. So what are some of the big issues that are going to come up? I'm going to kick this to you as host, but we'll both kind of go back and forth. So I guess what are the, the big issues that we're thinking then the new slate of council members is likely to face? Well, I really think the pensions are going to continue to be one of the biggest issues. And the reason I say that is because the pension debt is not actually going down. It's getting bigger. Um, we expected, at least I expected, that when the income tax was instituted and when the city took a bunch of recommendations from the financial health team, that we would begin to see the closing of the gap between what the city owes and what the city has in the bank in terms of the pension system. But that gap continues to widen. So this is going to have to be something that the new 
council grapples with. And as I reported, part of the issue is that retirees are living longer, which means the pension systems have to have more money in them. The investment return has not been as sunny and rosy as MERS. The, the pension system has chosen to make it right. look like it would be. And then in addition to that, We've got a situation where George Lahanis, the city manager, is still giving pensions to various employees, and that means the pension system continues to have new people into the pension system, and that's growing. So that's going to be an issue. What do you think, Andrew? What do you see as being big issues for this new council? So I agree on the pension fund, although I am not nearly as well-versed in the issue as you are. The city attorney issue has sort of been publicly pushed to the, the new council, which makes sense, as Mayor Jesse Gregg explained it, that... They want to give the new council a chance to hire an attorney who they can hopefully work with long term and not have a council with potentially outgoing members. Two of them currently are appointed and Shannon, three of them are appointed, actually, excuse me, and to have them hire a city attorney weeks, months before an election might not be the most sensible thing. So I think that makes sense, but it does put the new council in a position of they're going to have to hire a new city attorney. And I think that also speaks to an even bigger issue with this election that hasn't been, it's not as tangible and it's maybe not something that a, an elected official or somebody vying to be one's going to as openly run on, but there have been three resignations from the council since mid 2020. And it's been a generally unstable time. The resignation, two of the resignations were caused by the firing of Tom Yaden, the city attorney. So it's just generally been an unstable time for the East Lansing elected government. I don't think that's a crazy statement for me to make. And a couple people have alluded to it. I know Mikey Manuel said it during the forum, but I think there is a desire and a, a sort of tacit backdrop of this race that people want people who will be there steady, stable the whole time. And not to say any of these candidates wouldn't, but I think that's that's an expectation or a desire in this race for all of these candidates to serve their terms. Definitely. In the latest edition of East Lansing Info's um, paper edition, which we put out about once a month, we have a graphic that was provided by our designer at my request, and it shows all of these changeovers in council, and it's a pretty dramatic graphic in that way. So um, I think another issue, Andrew, that's going to be coming up is the housing study and definitely the question of yeah. what East Lansing should be doing with regard to zoning, issues of form-based zoning, the question of what to do with that marginal space between downtown and the older neighborhoods that have owner-occupied houses. There's some interest among some folks of making that a section that would see redevelopment in terms of townhouses and small apartment buildings. Um, other people might not be interested in that. And then there's questions about whether or not we should allow more building of student housing, which produces a lot of taxes, but is something we, some people feel we simply have too much of. So I think, and you know, not necessarily renters who feel that way, because as we see more and more housing being built, rent is getting cheaper and renting is getting easier. So that's not something necessarily that renters feel is a bad thing. So it's going to be, I think, quite interesting in terms of the issue of zoning and housing in the next couple of years. Agreed. I am always looking for low rents in East Lansing, which is a rare sighting. Um, and uh, the last issue I think we'll touch on here and one that has become near and dear to my heart is water infrastructure and flooding, just because as long as citizens are still experiencing any issues with that, I'm pretty confident they're going to keep bringing it forward to the city government. We know there's some presentations already planned about it after the election 
And I believe once the new, yeah, once the new council is seated, uh, there's a November 16th presentation coming from Nicole McPherson about the city sewer system. And there's just certainly more to come on that issue and it's going to be on them to handle it however it needs to be handled we can get in here <laughs> alice is in the document that we use for the show <laughs> and we can yeah so we should briefly explain before we get too deep into who is running and who might win or who is looking good we should explain that there's seven candidates running for three seats but there's technically two races or two elections kind of occurring there's five candidates in a pool running for two open seats for four-year terms and then there's two more candidates ron bacon and mikey manuel who are running for an open two-year term so the five four-year candidates are george brookover dane bowman dana watson chuck grigsby and adam delay I, for some reason, I want to say Bacon's one because he's already on council. Bacon's running for a two-year seat. But that bit of context is important because it's kind of a funky, there's seven people running for three seats, but it's really five for two and two for another, the third seat. So it's and a what's kind of interesting is I, none of none of them have run for election before. So the people who are currently no. on council were appointed. So these are all newbies in terms of running for these well, seats. Running for council election. I was going to say, I think George Brookover has been elected to a couple things. School yes, board, he was correct? on school board. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so we, <laughs> we talked about the 2015 election. The 2019 election was the last general election, I believe, in the city of East Lansing citywide, right? Yes. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, and so, no. There was an election about the <laughs> land sale to MSUFCU. But in terms correct. of city council, the last election was 2019. Right, right. Gotcha. So a lot has changed since then. I sort of alluded to it when talking about the issues facing the city, but you know, there have been three resignations. We've had three different mayors. There have been eight different people who have served on council. There's a new city attorney, potentially another new city attorney. What else have we seen? I guess what else has changed? What else has been different? What else has, what's the sort of landscape of the city been like? or changed since the last council election. Yeah, so there's been this pandemic thing. <laughs> and uh, well, that oh, obviously... Oh, yeah, just that. <laughs> that has created a bit of stress. And then in addition to that, we've seen changes in approaching to policing that we've never seen before. And again, I want to remind folks that that predated the murder of George Floyd in East Lansing. That, not that that murder occurred in East Lansing, but the reform movement occurred in East Lansing beginning before that. Um, that had to do with uh, stops of black men by white officers and tensions here around that. And that kind of protest movement actually started in advance of the national protests with regard to the murder of George Floyd. So it's been going on a long time in East Lansing. We now have had the study committee of for Independent Police Oversight Commission. We've got the commi- commission members named. They haven't met yet, but they will start meeting in November. So we are going to start seeing that take place. And the question of how much council oversight occurs on that is, I think, going to be a tense issue based on what we've seen at city council in terms of some people wanting a lot of uh, management by that group, by city council, others wanting a more hands-off, a true independent kind of commission. So I think that's going to be quite interesting. Well, and I think that could vary widely going forward based on who gets elected to city council, because I'd imagine if it were a Chuck Grigsby on council, he would be perfectly fine to let the oversight committee do their thing. If it's somebody else, I don't know. Maybe Chuck would want to pool around with it because he helped form it. I actually don't know that. So, But that definitely is something to pay attention to going forward. Transparency is also an issue that 
we are always excited to talk about here at Eli, but one that I think has been this council in particular, not to say previous ones have not been about transparency, but has been publicly about being transparent and being upfront with what they're doing. What we have found, though, is in terms of actually dealing with the city and getting information that transparency has stagnated or gone backwards. I'm curious what your stance is on that, Alice, or what you've experienced. But in, I in my experience, it's just been harder to I would have to agree with you, Andrew, that stuff. it feels like yeah. we've taken two steps back. And that's kind of shocking to me because... Jesse Gregg ran on a campaign of transparency. Lisa Babcock ran on a campaign of transparency. They've done nothing to fix the what I consider to be a broken FOIA policy, even though they've talked about that. At least Babcock has talked about working on that. Um, Babcock has certainly tried to get more stuff from policing to be more transparent, but we've seen very little movement on this council. And we've seen rejection after rejection after rejection of our FOIA requests, some of them quite ridiculous. Um, I know at the end of the time today, we're going to be talking about one of them. But, you know, just yesterday, one of the relatively new reporters for Eli, who's been filing FOIAs, said to me, how is it you've not been driven insane by these people? Because they just keep telling us that things that are public documents cannot be seen by us. We have been driven insane. I know. That's what I said to him. I said, (laughs) the difference is... I said the difference is I'm in the asylum with excellent company because so many good reporters have come on board. And so I feel like I've got great company in the asylum, but it does drive me absolutely insane. We are constantly having to fight for things that are so obviously public documents where they try to say that they're not public documents. And some of the arguments given, well, we'll get to this at the end of the, the time, but some of the arguments given are just ridiculous. So I definitely feel like transparency is going to be an issue. And several of the candidates running have said that they care about this issue, but when, you know, they seem to care about it before the election occurs, and then they end up on council. And then it's just damn awkward to say to the city manager, why are you withholding public documents from the public? And so they don't say it, and they don't do it. And they reject our appeals. I find it fascinating that Mark Meadows reversed more uh, denials than anybody I've dealt with. And I think that frankly, that's because he's a lawyer, and he knows FOIA law, and he knows what the law actually says. But it's been making me nuts that under this current administration, under Aaron Stevens, and now under Jesse Gregg, we are getting rejections. Now, Jesse's not had a chance to weigh in on our appeals. She has two of them before her this week. So we'll wait and see that. But Aaron Stevens absolutely refused our appeals repeatedly over and over again. And this this has just been very frustrating. Yeah. So getting into this year's campaign, we've mentioned the five candidates. I wanted to highlight some recent reporting done by our own Chris Root, who actually served on the committee to form the Police Oversight Commission. But Chris was reporting on some campaign finance for us. And I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds on this. If you want to read, check it out at eastlansinginfo.news. It's under our elections tab. We have all sorts of fantastic election coverage there that you can use to guide your decision and get equipped to vote. But the, the big takeaway that I had, and this is because I like charts, was that George Brookover in the four-year race and Ron Bacon in the two-year race are comfortably, comfortably ahead of the field in terms of fundraising. Uh, Brookover, I think, race raised something around $24,000. Bacon's around 21000 And nobody else in any other races has broken 10000 And so big, big gulf in fundraising there. We'll see how it shows up in the actual outcome of the race or if there's any sort of correlation. But that was my one big sort of headline takeaway. And then the other thing of note getting into some PAC funding is Bacon with his large lead uh, about 9,000 or 9,000 of that 21,000 or so 
came from uh, political action committees or PACs. Uh, Chris explains it in the the story, breaks down which ones. It's a lot of PACs that are related to unions and other such trades or realtors and the Chamber of Commerce, operating engineers, similar such things. Anything else on that? Alice or yeah just I mean I would note Andrew that this election has been very different from ones in the past in part because people are not going to door to door nearly as much so the conventional wisdom in East Lansing has been and I think it's true that the way you win a city council seat here is you go door to door you knock on every door and you stand there for a long time with a lot of people talking about a lot of issues and one of the great things about that is that that means that the people who are elected to council typically have gotten an earful from a lot of different people. So they know the issues people really care about, which is pretty cool. Exactly, And that tends to inform their governing. But we're not seeing that this time, partly because of the pandemic. And people are not really thrilled at the idea of people showing up their, their doors necessarily, but also because people are just really busy right now because of dealing with all the after effects of the pandemic and all the, you know, still still struggling against the tide in a lot of ways. So folks have not been doing active ground campaigns as we've seen in the past. Some people have. So for example, Chuck Grigsby started very early on a door-to-door campaign. Um, but uh, some other folks, we've not heard much about them ending up door-to-door. And so it's been a very different kind of election that way. For example, Dana Watson uh, has a few signs out, but not very many signs for somebody who's on council. In the past, we would have typically seen more signs. We've seen a lot of signs for Brookover, for example, huge numbers of signs for Brookover. And one of the ways those signs get out there is because people are doing um, ground campaigns. And, you know, do the yard signs matter? That's a question people always ask us. My own take after seven years of reporting on Eli and reporting on now four different elections is that the yard signs matter to the extent that if people who are influential in a neighborhood have signs up, it does seem to mean that people who live around them who trust them might lean in those directions. So yard signs do seem to matter to some extent. They, I don't think they matter as much when people stick them out in the highway, you know, the the, the green boulevards along the highways like M43 or M69 or any of those kinds of things. Those don't matter as much. But what matters is when people in neighborhoods have signs up and it people know that neighbor and they feel like, oh, that's a neighbor who pays attention. Those do seem to matter. So it's been interesting to me to see the distribution of yard signs around town and who's got signs up and who doesn't have signs up. So I think I think it's going to be a very different election in that way too. And I just wanted to tell people that one of the things we can do, fascinatingly, I learned this from Mark Grebner, one of our county commissioners and a local political consultant, we actually can get copies of the ballots after the election. And we will be doing that again to do analysis on the ballots. After the last election, the 2019 election, election, one of the things we did was took those ballots and looked at if a voter voted for person A, who were they most likely to vote for with that person? And it allowed us to see how voters were thinking about who they were pairing or not pairing up with. It also allowed us to see how many voters chose to throw away votes, so not to use all of their votes, which you sometimes do to weight your vote more, or sometimes because you're just not happy with enough candidates to vote to use all of your votes. So that's kind of an interesting thing to do. And I did just want to remind gotcha. people, Andrew, that we do nonpartisan reporting, so we are not interested in telling you who to vote for. We, you will never see no. it either lie an endorsement of a candidate, which you will see is us bringing as much information as we can to help you figure out based on your values, who you want to vote for. That's what we're all about is trying to bring enough information so you can say, this is who I agree with. I like to tell you what people are doing. I don't like to tell people what to do. That's kind of what it boils down to. We take it seriously. (laughs) Um, 
So, so An- Andrew, close- you did some yeah. reporting on a poll that we actually got um, via Practical Political yes. Consulting, and I thought Just- it was quite interesting. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's again, it's a poll, and I think the the important way to think about it is a poll is a snapshot in time. It tells us what people are thinking when you ask them that question. So with that in mind, it it showed that Brookover has a pretty strong chance of winning one of the two four year seats, likely as the lead vote getter. But if not, chances are he'll be the second vote getter. So Grebner, Mark Grebner, who firm conducted the poll, I spoke with him and read his analysis, and it's pretty likely that Brookover will be elected and the th- the remaining three or the three candidates vying for the second seat most likely will be Bowman, uh, Watson, and Grigsby, Adam DeLay in a sort of distant fifth. And then in the two-year race, Bacon is just trouncing Manuel. I mean, in the poll, he's it's like three variances, like three margins of error ahead or more. So even with a small sample and a not wholly rel- a, a sort of notable skew and understanding the limits of the poll, it still gives us a, a clearer picture than we previously had, which shows that Brookover's got a pretty good chance of being elected with one of Bowman, Watson, or Grigsby likely joining him, and then more likely than not, Bacon being elected over Manuel. But that's just that snapshot in time, so it could obviously shift in the weeks since it happened because that poll i can't remember when it was conducted it was around october something it goes back two weeks ago and you know one of the things one of the reasons we're interested in doing the yeah one of the reasons we're interested in doing that kind of polling is to encourage people to remember that if there's a candidate you feel passionately about there is still time to go out there and do campaigning for that candidate there is absolutely still time to do that um i mean we're getting very close now and a lot of people have voted absentee so it's getting late in the game but we we don't know who it's going to be. So it's going to be interesting, I think. All right. So I'm going to jump to the end and give you, Alice, about two minutes here to go through our weird slash transparency thing of the week, because you were telling me about this before we started recording. And it was fascinating to me and also nonsensical. So get into it. <laughs> okay, so the weird transparency thing of the week is that um, for reasons I won't bother getting into, our data analysis, Nathan Andrus, was interested in seeing the schedule of the city manager for just a couple of days. And he, FOIA'd, used Freedom of Information Act to request the city manager's calendar for those couple of days. And he was given a rejection, basically saying that we're not allowed to see that kind of thing because it doesn't count as a public document. And I found this particularly ridiculous because a few years back, I was at a local news conference and this guy, I was an academic, sorry, I forget who it was and where he was from, but he gave this very impassioned speech about the importance of using FOIA all the time, of reminding the government all the time that we have the right to see public documents and that is our right. And so one of the things he recommended was FOIAing the calendars of city officials. So I went home and I did that because I was like, wow, okay, I should do that. And I'm interested to see what it shows. So I FOIA'd George Lahanis's city calendar. At the time, I also FOIA'd um, Mark Meadows and Eric Altman's because they were mayor and mayor pro tem of the city. So I FOIA'd those three calendars and I got them back. And I got George Lahanis's entire year calendar with a few redactions that were done for personal things like medical appointments. But for the most part, I was able to see his entire calendar for a year. So this is a good example of a couple years ago, this was considered a public document in the city of East Lansing. And now we're being told it's not a public document to even see a couple of days of the city manager's calendar. 
that's how things have changed. And when I think about how to, what to attribute that to, I think the difference is we have a city council that's relatively green and we have a city attorney who's just following what the city manager probably is telling them to do. Why am I just having an image of <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh's calendars from his you know, speech week with PJ and Squee or whatever? <laughs> you can't see their personal calendars, but you can see their work uh, calendars because they are public officials. Gotcha. Well, we are out of time here. Thank you again for listening. This has been the East Lansing Insider brought to you by East Lansing Info and 89 Impact FM. I'm Andrew Graham with Alice Drake. East Lansing Insider is brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. We are on the web at eastlansinginfo.news and impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening.